What is poetry? That's a question that myself and a lot of other teachers often ask their students. I always did on the first day, whether I was teaching third graders or adults um, or anywhere in between, I would I would ask them, what is poetry? Um, and I also think that that's an inherent thing. Uh, that's an inherent question when people say, I don't get poetry. Um, a statement that a lot of my uh, non-poet friends tell me. And um, I think it's I think it's a really important question um, for all of us to consider uh, beyond the like dictionary definition. And um, and I and I've been uh, pleased by a lot of the answers I've come across, be it from um, famous poets or from um, some of those answers that students give. Uh, Matea Harvey talks about one of her third grade students one time. Uh, said that something of to the effect that um, a poem is an egg with a horse inside. And uh, I had a student, a fourth grade student, who said uh, poetry is a bone in the throat. And in those, I, I'm amazed at both the wonder and the terror in those answers and the tension and the hope that comes from the idea um, of a horse inside of an egg or the bone in the throat and possible meanings of that uh and the po- the possibilities in that uh and in terms of possibilities i also think of paul valerie's uh answer or his idea that the first line of a poem is like a fallen fruit of uh that you've never seen before um but that the poet's job is then to create the tree from which it fell and I, I also think of Jack Spicer, uh, who had this theory about um, the way a poem gets made is that there's all this furniture in your brain, which is your thoughts and your feelings and your memories and whatnot, and that Martians come in and rearrange that furniture, and that makes the poem. And there's something beautiful in that, too, this kind of surrender to the task of it, um, something of a willing, making something of an unwilling can do it of uh of the poet uh and as i as i start to kind of take on a more spiritual or mystical understanding of the world as my own beliefs and worldviews have evolved i i've been thinking lately about what pete holmes said uh in conversation i believe with duncan trussell when he was uh talking about uh people and the way we can reimagine ourselves uh in the world and is the fact that we as people or maybe we as the poet are the sky and the poem and the other things, the different identities we take on, the different people, the different objects and people in our lives, the different things like that are the clouds that pass through. Um, but yeah, as you can probably hear in my voice, I'm not a hundred percent sure uh, what poetry is and what a poem is in a traditional sense. But I also think that's why I still love poetry after um, a very intense 15 years with it. Um, It's why I still write poetry after writing, um, can I say thousands? Maybe not thousands, but many, many thousands of lines of poetry and reading thousands of poems and hundreds of books of poems. That's why I still love it. There are a few things. I do know that 
poems are not puzzles and they're not stories. Um, if, if we're looking for happy endings, cookbooks are a better idea, perhaps. Um, in some ways, poems are experiences of experiences for me. If what Spicer says is true, then it's, then it's this third hand, fourth hand learning about all that furniture that is in someone's brain. Um, if, if what Valerie says is true, then it's that experiencing of the fruit and the witnessing of the tree from a distant perspective, uh, from a down the line, but it's still an experience and experience in and of itself. And I've, and as I've continued my exploration of my understanding of poetry, of course, it's taken me through an exploration of my understanding of myself. And inextricably, this is, this links, uh, my poetry to my struggles with bipolar disorder. Um, something that I was diagnosed with about, uh, a year and a half ago, something that I've struggled with now for a decade, uh, since my first bipolar episode, um, and yeah, and so, and it goes back, and I remember thinking back to when I became in love with poetry, which was around the time, um, I, I started to experience bipolar symptoms, uh, namely, uh, mood swings and, and minor, uh, psychotic symptoms like hallucinations. Uh, yeah, and thinking back to that time, I just remember really feeling stuck between, um, feeling both smart and dumb, feeling both hick and liberal, uh, lost both in my body and in my mind. Uh, but, but poetry, like, uh, the current work I'm doing with mindfulness has taught me to be done with dualism, uh, it taught me that maybe I'm uh, not falling on one end of smart or dumb or hick or liberal, but I'm I'm outside of that identity and I'm some sort of uh, swirl of that. And I think that's really reflected in poetry. Um, truths or lies, reader or not, good or bad, in or out. Um, I know for me... I've never been able to write an accurate account of what I'm going through. Um, yeah, I'm, I've never been able to recollect in the same way other people recollect because of my memory loss. Um, and in some ways, I'm not even sure anyone can. If you look at studies about how people remember and misremember and unremember and disremember, and I think that's where poetry really can shine, and I think back to those beginning times writing poems, and the first time people were really responded to my poems, they were responding to the things in my poems that are things that have caused me trouble in life and other areas, dissociation, mood swings, poly, polyvocality, my occasional out 
owl shit outburst. Um, yeah, and so it's in that turmoil and in that swirl, I think that poetry for me came alive and continues to be alive. And I think to what I, I hear a lot of people, and maybe I was this way in my struggle, in my long struggle uh, to begin to manage my disorder and my mental illness, um, artists have this fear that getting better, be it from mental illness, be it from uh, be it from addiction or what have you, that in that getting better, they'll lose what makes their work good or meaningful. Um, but I realized that in getting better, my poems, in getting better in my personal life, my poems were were able to continue to do the work they'd always been doing, renegotiating the terms of my living. They were this place to dispel, to expel those demons and cultivate my hopeful angels. They're that place to stick my psycho, uh, to take bits of my story and symptoms of my madness and use them as tools for expression instead of as shackles, uh, to weigh myself down, uh, in my living. It was the place, it was that playground where I could get out that restless energy in some ways. Of course, I'm still not answering the question, what is poetry? Um, because I believe there's so much about life that is unsayable, yet we're still trying, and I think that's what's beautiful. I think poets, more than any sort of expressive person, uh, are still trying to say the unsayable, and no, they never will. Uh, my mentor in poetry, and in a lot of ways in life, Dean Young, he was adamant that poetry is not a form of communication, right? And I and I wholly believe him. I'll tell you, if you want to communicate with me, write me a letter or give me a call. Don't give me a poem. Don't ask me to write you a poem. Um. Yeah, and so I've been... And that I was having a conversation with a friend, a non-poet, um, but a wonderful, thoughtful friend, a very spiritual friend. And I was talking to him about how I notice a lot of times in work that is reaching, in artistic work that is reaching for something, that is trying to communicate something about mental illness, about spirituality, it falls short. Because it it falls short in the way that it attaches to cliche or it boils down to something so simple it's not interesting. And it seems, you know, as one of these poems in this book says about Trevor Borden's songs, uh, it's like uh, Chickadees in the Shadow of the Tiger or something like that. Um, and And that's what I... And that's what I want to resist a little here. I want to say, if if you're going to try to touch my heart, if you're going to try to mend it in some way, you might as well make it new, make a part of it new, make a part of it different, make a part of it other. Because I, 
I want to believe that in poetry there's something bigger in po- in the possibility of poetry. I I think possibility and poetry are inextricably linked as well. So maybe poetry is what Will Alexander calls the flexible ambulation through one's mental catacombs. I don't know. I still don't know. But I do know that poetry, more than anything in my life, is proof that I'm still alive. So here it is. My new book of poems. I once was someone else and often still am. 64 pieces of evidence that I've writhed and grieved, that I've hurt others and hurt myself, that I've grown and that I'm expanding. Like I like to do, I threw this poem up or this book of poems up on my website in PDF form. Uh, simple uh, word document turned into PDF that anyone can look at, that anyone can read. Uh, to see my, as Whitman says, my yops. Um, and I've also made fifty handmade. Uh, hard copies of this. Uh, it doesn't look like a normal book of poems. It's not perfect bound because I'm not perfect bound because these poems aren't perfect bound or, or nor deserve to be. Uh, I made a book, a handmade book, that's about to fly apart because I'm about, I'm always on the verge of flying apart. These poems are always on the verge of flying apart. And I gave, I'm giving them to the 50 people in my life who most uh, supported me during the last few years when the struggle got really bad um, with my bipolar disorder. But I also wanted to do it here in podcast form because my poems have always uh, meant or asked to be read aloud. I think they're, they're absolutely a product of my voice. Whatever that might mean. Uh, yeah, and so I'll be popping out weekly episodes, uh, five or six poems at a time. And I'll do a little intro like this about some thoughts around poetry and about expression um, and about being alive. And I won't explain much about the poems. It's not my style when I did readings. It's not I never did that. Um but in the intro I'll give one rational or story centered tidbit for each poem just for fun. How about that? Um so I'll start with the first five uh poems in the book and I'll tell you I'll do my little tidbits and then we'll get to the reading of the poems. This fir- the first poem is it's called To the Future. And uh, I think an important thing, especially for my non-poet friends listening, uh, Frank O'Hara, who is featured heavily in this poem, um, was one of my first favorite poets. And he's one of the main folks in the New York School of Poets um, from the 20th century, mid-20th century. And... Uh, yeah, he had a, well, you'll learn a little about him here, but he he was famous for his poems that were the 
uh, I did this, then I did that poem where he kind of just talks about what he's doing and where he's going and moving throughout the world. And I've always found that uh, to be a big part of the way I navigate through poems in my own way. Second poem's called Life. Um, and it comes out of this, the first part of the poem says this string of seashells. And this string of seashells for me is this strange sculpture that I found when I moved into my grandparents' house a couple years ago. It was in the closet and it's all these uh, tan seashells in kind of in one of this, like, like usually you would see like a macrame kind of uh, hanging beaded thing. Um, but this is all seashells and it was strange and beautiful. And so I hung it up. And then as I was going through family photos, I saw a photo of it being hung up in my, uh, when my grandparents lived here, probably 25, 30 years before this hanging up in the corner in the exact same corner that I hung it up and that felt really beautiful to me and so it led me down this road of thinking about that uh the third poem is uh called he couldn't entertain was the high quantity and that that title sounds a little weird because it is a little weird but also it uh it goes back to the way I put these poems together uh so when I first started school at the Missioner Center for Writers for my MFA in poetry, my mentor, Dean Young, said to me, um, your poems are great, but if you want anyone to read them, you have to find a way to contain the chaos of it. So my poems, because of the using um, the mechanisms of my madness, like dissociation and polyvocality and all that, uh, they get a little frantic sometimes. And so his, the metaphor he used was like, you have fission material and you have a reactor. And so you need to build some sort of reactor that safely contains the, the fission material so that it can be its wild nuclear self. Um, and so what I've done for this book, all the poems, the titles are the second line of the poem. And also all the poems are in some sort of, usually made up or bastardized or incomplete form. In this case, it's a sonnet that's cut one line short, so it's 13 lines instead of 14. Um, yeah, and so that, yeah, the second line is always the title, and it's always some sort of, be it through syllabics or through uh, strange form, um, is how it works. And that's probably better seen if you want to check out the PDF. Anyhow, fourth poem is called More Than Six Years Old. Um, and this is a good this is a good representation of some of the delusional things I was dealing with. It's not my story, but I realized as I was going as I was getting medicated and kind of coming back to earth in some ways, um, that my that uh stories of other people that I intersected through them telling it or somehow in that atmosphere that connected with me, uh, were sticking to me as my own stories. And I was having trouble, um, differentiating between my stories and other stories. And then also got me this idea, does that even matter? What is a, 
story, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I explore that a lot in this book as well. And so this is one of those. And the last poem in the, uh, in, that I'm going to read for this episode um, is called Self-Worth is Something. And I remember very specifically um, a classmate at the Mission Center for Writers who was mad at me for something um, that both of us couldn't fully understand. Um, thought he was being mean uh, when he wrote on this poem in workshop. No other notes, no other anything about the poem, but he wrote in the margin of the poem, is this something from your journal? And I just laughed at that because he meant it, he meant to say that journals were below poetry or something like that. But I, my thought was, where else do you write poems? And what else do you write poems with besides the tidbits of your life that come up in stuff like journals? Um, and so... Uh, I'm happy that some of these little tidbits, some of these furniture, as Jack Spicer would call it, got rearranged here. And self-worth is something. Okay, enough. Enough yip-yap. Uh, how about some poems? To the future. I've decided no more traveling to the future, which was far, easier than shifting to the past, which was chock full of problems and trees. Personally, I would love to catch up with the present. These tremors I can't properly halt. These words can't help but lead to stark, untimely death. No more dying, replied Frank O'Hara, who after saying did a bit of his own dying, squeezed from the toothpaste container of life by what I assumed for nine years was called a doom buggy. A mistake Frank might return a nod, slight giggle. My mom, she once demanded I eat as much as craved and act terribly. We arrived at Daytona Beach, and I learned if a family listens to a sad sack yap for some 30 or so long minutes about a condo, or seven, if your pale child behaves poorly enough, they'll let you grab freely from their rack of donuts, slurpy machine, plus you will receive a coupon for a free dune buggy rental. Of course, this happened after someone done ran over Frank O'Hara on Fire Island, but before it was said, uh, no more dune buggies on the beach. Simpler times. My hair was thick like sand. Life. The string of seashells on display illuminates life. Look how delightfully it resists being interpreted and erupted relegated. Slippery was merely pieces once haven't cinched to maintain a singular space. We can all see the friction invested in their surfaces over the centuries. Much bounces off my string of seashells. Humor, agony, ecstasy, boredom, doubt, self-referentiality. Say God put these shells here. You would be wrong, interesting premises, but you would be wrong. One cannot glance upon these shells without maintaining his or her own preference. We all misbehave for our own purpose. 
a kind of collection of what I was thinking at each given moment. This one for when grandmother died. This one for the envelopes I dropped beneath the tires of the tractor. This one for the snake the redneck kid pulled out of Lucan's lake. This one for my first dislocated shoulder, my seventh. This one belonged to Matthew's dead hermit crab. Me? Never cared if a seashell signaled a thing. More interested in the next seashell I will happen upon. You can feel this sort of energy grow. I was 31 and I thought to myself, this is a nice way of making something. A way to remember what I've seen in the crashing waves. Two unanswerable questions rose to the surface. Are we ever beyond the pulling, do you think? Always seemed harder to surf without a surfboard. Failures of reference, shifty variables near the equator. You and I both know I am talking about something without saying exactly what it is. A fairly recent concern. I hope... This will take my string of seashells to impossible limits. On the other hand, it might just be this. He couldn't entertain was the high quantity. Darwin witnessed wolves transform into dogs, but what he couldn't entertain was the high quantity of quarters with my dumb thumbprint fossilized in the dust of Cheetos, this my trick to impress my peers in romantic interest. I would squeeze a quarter tight till warm before I would toss it up and just a bit out across the void into the pocket of these baggy black jean shorts, flaming eight ball patch on the butt. True, Darwin suspected our center to be molten lava, but he had no hunch of the commotion inside of my head. This kick drum called a skull, my tense difficulty with fear, distant notion of a bald king named Ralph. More than six years old. First day on the bus, I couldn't have been more than six years old. Yes, mother dropped me off each day of kindergarten, baked in the loaf of her brown sedan, no AC. A single seatbelt mine. But then she flipped jobs from the Crisco plant to the psych ward in no way she was rising so early. So thus take the bus I did. Anyhow, that first ride, no seats are left. And yes, scared, I am halfway to hell. My little sack of bones, my little sack of ham sandwich. My little sack shriveled upward inside till the dang kindest cowboy to this day I ever met. A high schooler named Jude. He lifted me without a word onto his lap and no, not in a way creepy, sexual, or uncomfortable, no. It just was. And I rode there like he must atop his horse and my heart sequestered its mighty pitter and my blue eyes brushed off its patter. I saw it right there through the dusty window the fattest turkey in the whole county, knew it to be true. It ducked behind the truck dad left behind. Self-worth is something. Hi, you must be a robust person. Self-worth is something. Grasshoppers elsewhere in the tall grass. 
I like myself. I continue being just as nimble and punctual as I can be. One who never dares leave my home without hands and feet. Last night, I dreamt about the Jerry Springer show. Specifically, two memories. In one, a dwarf leaves her husband for a guy named Hambone. In the other, Guar. That messy metal band finds itself confronted by parents whose kids keep ruining the laundry, insisting on fake blood for customizing their t-shirts. This morn, I remembered Jerry Springer was once mayor of Cincinnati, recorded a country album, earned a law degree. Some things always change are possible. Roast beef colored car. First, thank you for listening. Thank you to all my friends and family for the visits, phone calls, and correspondences for making sure I stayed alive to finish this manuscript, including, but certainly not limited to, Zach Sadie and the Hunter Boys, Josh Cayley and Violet Lee, Jess Council and her crew, Jason Arnold, Steph Pappy and the Arnold Boys, Tracer Towner and family, Clark Moser, Darren Eaton, Marie Ponce de Leon, Paz Pardo, Enrique Lozano, and Elias, Jonna Henry, and Charlie Martin, Cody Van Buskirk, and family, Larry Nutt, Dan Keelish, the Murray family, Jamie Crawford, the Avant family, Jesse Bearden, Matt Spencer, Judd Ferris, Tim and Christina Durr, Gia Murata, Eric Matson, Hannah Margolin, Lacey Patterson, Heather Collier and family, Eric Clough, Lori Sauerborn, Brendan McLean, Melody and Marie Smith, Terry Tan, Morgan Jackman and family, the Tyner and Gobble families. Thank you to the artists that kept me churning during this process slash processing, state champion Dean Young, Mary Rufel, Landon Caldwell, Anthony Ray Wright, Sarah Shook and the Disarmers, Pete Holmes, C.D. Wright, the Felice Brothers, Maria Bamford, Abraham Smith, Ada Lamone, Francis Picabia, Bill Burr, Will Alexander, Ross Gay, D.A. Powell, Phoebe Bridgers, David Berman, In the Face of War, David Blaine, David Bazan, the creators of King of the Hill, May May Bruce and Bruges, Lucy Brock Broido, John Ashbury, Kenneth Koch, and Frank O'Hara. Thanks to the folks who gave me places to go to be both myself and someone else. The Elwood Disc Golf Enthusiasts, the Anderson Disc Golf Club, Power Barn, the Waking Up app, all the guests and friends of the Future Barn podcast, Bill Simmons and the Ringer Network, in the windmill tavern. Thanks to any mental health professional that has held my wobbly head, both figuratively and literally, over these past decade, especially Ruby Joe Walker. Thank you to my ancestors for the guidance and the gifts, including most recently Fred Tyner and Tony Gobble, and most historically significant Joanne Tyner 
and Ricky Gobble. Thank you also to my teachers for their guidance and their gifts. Most recently, Ram Das and Sam Harris, and most historically significant, Todd McKinney and Dean Young. Thank you to the most supportive and patient parents around, Jeff and Tammy Gobble, for accepting my many parts. Thank you to the light that's gone away, Diana Lynn Small, for the years of loving and the lessons of leaving. Thank you to the light that always stays, Jenny Bug, for being a badass dog. <laughs>